0: Norman Centuries, episode 16, Tancred of Lichy. Welcome back. Last time we talked about William II. Though remembered by historians as William the Good, his reign wasn't successful due to one overwhelming and for a Houtville surprising failure. He didn't produce a son. When he died suddenly at age 36, the kingdom was thrown into a succession crisis. Thankfully, the absence of a king didn't seem to overly disrupt day-to-day affairs, Roger II's magnificent civil service kept things temporarily running, but no state could afford to be headless for too long. There was no shortage of ambitious pretenders, but there were only three serious claimants. The official heir was the late king's aunt, Constance. A few objected because of her gender, but what made her unsuitable to most Sicilians was the fact that she was currently married to Henry VI, crown prince of the Holy Roman Empire, Sicily's mortal enemy. The opposition party crystallized around two noblemen, Tancred of Lichy and Roger of Andrea. They seemed to be evenly matched. Both were decorated war heroes with plenty of titles and awards and could boast long careers of service to the state. Roger drew support from the nobility, while Tancred was popular with the minor barons and the masses. But the distinguishing feature was one of blood. Roger could only muster a distant link to the throne he was a great-grandson of Drogo de Houtville, while Tancred was the illegitimate grandson of Roger II. There was no question of who had the stronger claim. The Pope, desperate to prevent a German takeover of Sicily, wrote from Rome throwing his support behind Tancred, and in January of 1190, he was crowned King of Sicily. The new king was, if we can trust the surviving hostile chronicles, short and unusually ugly. A contemporary historian nicknamed him Tancredulous, and informs us that he resembled a monkey. Behold, he wrote at Tancred's coronation, an ape is crowned. But if physically unimpressive, Tancred was also energetic, smart, and ambitious. He had been involved in the coup of 1161, personally storming into the palace and taking William the Bad prisoner. When the rebellion collapsed, he had accepted exile in exchange for official pardon, and, given the king's less than sterling reputation, emerged from the whole ordeal with his name unscathed. He had need of both reputation and political skills almost immediately. At the news of his coronation, the kingdom's long-simmering religious tensions boiled over. The Muslim population had been declining since the Normans had first conquered Sicily. Under Roger II, they had been an influential and respected minority, but with each year they had been steadily disenfranchised with the influx of Latins from the mainland. After William II had died, they had thrown their support behind Constance, figuring that the foreign Germans would be glad of allies, and Tancred's success was seen as a crushing blow. When a group of Christians unwisely assaulted a mosque in Palermo, the entire Muslim population of Sicily erupted. When Tancred sent soldiers to stabilize the situation, the Arabs fled to the surrounding hills where they seized several castles. Somehow Tancred managed to confine the rebellion to the western part of the island, but it took the better part of a year to finally suppress it. Part of the reason that it smoldered on for so long was that Tancred was distracted with ominous news from northern Europe. The German emperor Frederick Barbarossa had drowned while in crusade, leaving the empire to his energetic son. Henry VI had been an intimidating enemy when he was merely a prince. Now he was an emperor. As the Muslim revolt blazed in Sicily, Henry crossed the Alps and invaded Italy. He had two aims. The first was to claim the iron crown of Lombardy, a golden diadem which had once belonged to the Roman Emperor Constantine and was called iron because it supposedly contained a nail from Christ's passion. The second was to install himself, with his wife Constance by his side, of course, on the throne of Sicily. Lombardy posed no obstacle. When Henry appeared in Rome with his army in 1191, the frightened Pope immediately crowned him Master of Northern Italy. Henry's second objective looked within reach as well. News of his approach had the usual effect, throwing the south into chaos. In addition to the familiar rebellious barons, there were now a growing number of Normans in the kingdom who supported Henry's invasion. Most of them were fatalists who believed that the smart play was to get in the emperor's good graces, but some had also made the calculation that a distant ruler in Germany would be less intrusive than a local king in Palermo. Henry entered Norman territory in the spring to find virtually the entire southern part of the peninsula in open revolt. Tancred couldn't leave Sicily to restore the situation. He was too pressed with the Muslim revolt and was still consolidating his power, but he acted quickly. A large amount of gold was sent to his general on the mainland to raise troops and bribe towns to stay loyal. Tancred's decisiveness and a run of good fortune saved the situation. The summer heat, always Sicily's greatest defender took its toll on the Germans, and when Tancred's army sharply defeated their advance force, Henry decided to withdraw. Left to themselves, the rebel barons quickly collapsed as well. Their ringleader, the same Roger of Andrea that had earlier contested for the throne, was captured and executed. Tancred's decisive action had saved the situation, but he understood that he had merely won a short reprieve from Henry's invasion. In any case, he didn't have long to savor the victory. There was news from the north. Richard the Lionhearted, King of Norman, England, was heading for Sicily. Though he had been on the throne only a year longer than Tancred, Richard's reputation as a heroic adventurer was already well known. He had been commanding armies in the field since he was 16, more than half his life by 1191, and he was widely viewed as the one figure who could rescue Jerusalem from the Saracens. The holy city had fallen three years before in 1188, triggering a call for a new crusade and the kings of Europe had immediately pledged their support. Richard, to the Pope's delight, had agreed to lead it, on the condition that the King of France, Philip Augustus, would go with him. This wasn't due out of a sense of royal fraternity, but because Richard didn't trust his colleague, and rightly suspected that Philip would confiscate his French lands the moment he was out of the country. William the Good, seeing a potential windfall from the increased trade that would follow in the Crusade's wake, had written to the pair suggesting that Sicily would make an ideal launching point. They had both agreed, and it now fell to Tancred to play the reluctant host. One gets the sense that Richard was a difficult guest at the best of times. Despite his reputation as the pinnacle of chivalry, he was easily bored and far more interested in adventuring than ruling. During his ten-year reign, he spent barely six months in England. As the historian Sir Stephen Runciman put it, he was a bad son a bad husband, and a bad king, but a gallant and splendid soldier. He could also be very moody, and by the time he reached Sicily, he was in a foul one. There were several reasons. He had a tendency to get seasick, and the crossing from Italy had been an unpleasant one. Even worse, when he arrived in Messina, he discovered that Philip had beaten him there, and had installed himself in the palace, leaving more modest accommodations for Richard. While these were annoyances, there was a more serious diplomatic problem. William the Good had, in typical fashion, promised lavish gifts to induce Richard to Sicily. Even more seriously, however, was Tancred's treatment of William's widow, Joanna. She believed that Constance was the right sovereign and had vocally supported the Germans against Tancred. As soon as he was king, Tancred had put her under house arrest and confiscated her vast estates. Unfortunately, she just happened to be Richard's sister. When Tancred's envoys came to welcome the English king to Sicily, therefore, Richard demanded both Joanna and her entire dowry, and threatened not to leave until he was satisfied. Tancred gave in immediately. He had more than enough on his plate without risking a conflict with a crusading army. Within a few days, Joanna appeared at Richard's residence, complete with every cent of her dowry and then some. This should have ended the matter, but Richard was enjoying the Sicilian climate and decided that it would make a splendid base, He raided Calabria, seizing the small town of San Salvatore to settle Joanna in style. He then returned to Messina and evicted the Greek monks of its finest monastery to use it to garrison his soldiers. The citizens of Messina, who were largely Greek, were horrified. They had welcomed the famous Lionheart with open arms, provided him with entertainment and living quarters, and he had repaid them with hostility and cruelty. The sight of the monks being forcibly removed was the last straw. The populace took to the streets, bringing whatever crude weapons they could find, and rushed Richard's villa. The English counterattack was immediate and deadly. Richard ordered his men to burn any Sicilian ships in the harbor, so the mob had nowhere to flee, and then told them to destroy the city. The only thing spared was the great palace at the center, where an alarmed Philip Augustus was staying. When it was over, Richard rounded up the survivors and forced them to construct a massive wooden fortress. Just to make sure everyone got the point, he named it Matagrifone, the Greek killer. Such atrocious behavior rallied all of Sicily around Tancred, but surprisingly he didn't even send a formal protest. He was playing a bigger game. No matter how aggravating Richard's behavior was, he wasn't a long-term threat. Tancred's real enemy was the Emperor Henry VI, and he needed any ally that he could find. If he was forced to swallow his pride in his own kingdom to secure Richard's friendship, then that was an acceptable price. So instead of soldiers, Tancred sent a vast sum of gold, enough to allow Richard to travel to the Holy Land in style, and implored him to winter in Sicily. At first, Richard continued his bluster. He was enjoying himself, but tensions with the French king were nearly at a breaking point, and in any case, he did intend to fulfill his crusading vow. In exchange for another round of gifts, he agreed to recognize Tancred as the rightful king. After Christmas, the two met in Palermo and sealed their alliance with a marriage contract between Richard's four-year-old son and Tancred's teenage daughter. As a sign of his new friendship, Richard presented his brother king with a sword that he claimed was Excalibur. Tancred's patience had paid off, and with the news that Henry was again on the march, it seemed just in time. But now Richard announced that he was leaving and no amount of begging by Tancred could change his mind. By April both he and Philip were gone, leaving Sicily alone to deal with the Western Empire. Henry VI was taking his time. He had brought with him his wife Constance and the bulk of his army, and knew full well how weak Tancred's support was on the mainland. When he crossed into Sicilian territory, there was virtually no resistance. Aversa, the first Norman possession in Italy, surrendered without a struggle, as did the entire northern part of the kingdom. Tancred may have been disappointed, but he wasn't surprised. He had concentrated his defenses on the south and opted to make his stand in Naples. While Tancred's admiral Margaritas kept the port open, the citizens of Naples put up a heroic defense. Even Henry was impressed. He couldn't effectively cut off the city from the sea, and therefore his siege was pointless. With the summer heat making everyone miserable, he decided to withdraw to regroup. As a sign to the Normans that he fully intended to return, he left his queen Constance with a full garrison at Salerno. As an act of bravado, it was an impressive show, but it was also a foolish mistake, and it soon became clear that Henry had badly misjudged the people of southern Italy. The towns and cities that had so quickly joined him were now desperate to prove their loyalty to Sicily. The citizens of Salerno wasted no time massacring the imperial garrison and delivering Constance to Palermo. Tancred could hardly believe his luck. Without Constance, Henry didn't have the slightest claim to Sicily's throne, and the price of her release would be the recognition of Tancred's kingship. All that was left was for Henry to realize he was beaten, and the long war would be over. The Pope, who was equally pleased that his all-powerful northern neighbor had been checked, wrote to Tancred immediately, offering his endorsement. But his letter also contained a devastating request. Amicable relations, it said, could never be achieved if one party held the other's wife prisoner. Send Constance to Rome, and the Pope would act as arbiter. Tancred was now caught. If he kept Constance in Palermo, he would antagonize his new ally and allow Henry to pose as a righteous crusader against the enemy of the Church. If, on the other hand, he let her out of his control, his one bargaining chip was lost. After a week of agonizing, he reluctantly allowed her to cross the Straits of Messina and begin the journey to Rome. It took less than a month for his worst fears to be realized. A party of imperial knights ambushed the Normans as they crossed out of Sicilian territory and freed Constance. Within two weeks, she was back with Henry, and he was making preparations to restore her to her throne. The silver lining in this disaster was that the Pope was now actively campaigning on Tancred's behalf. He managed to keep Henry busy by endorsing several rebel German barons, and it took more than nine months for the emperor to finally crush them. Tancred used the breathing room to search for other allies. Richard the Lionhearted was no use. After the limited success of the Third Crusade, he had been captured by Henry trying to return to England and was now held captive at the German court. Richard's brother John was in no great hurry to ransom him, but did send several shipments of silver, which Henry was busy using to buy and equip a fleet to invade Sicily. Tancred had few options, but he did what he could, reaching out to the one power that was naturally hostile to the Holy Roman Empire, Byzantium. After some hurried negotiations, Tancred convinced the Emperor Isaac Angelus to agree to a marriage alliance. Unfortunately for Norman Sicily, however, the Byzantines were not in a position to help. Isaac was a weak emperor of a weak dynasty, and the empire was now a hollow shell of itself. It had less than a decade to run before being wrecked by the terrible blow of the Fourth Crusade. Tancred was, for all intents, isolated. His one capable ally, the Pope, was 87, and in frail health, and in any event was powerless before the coming storm. Yet Tancred struggled bravely on alone, always conscious of his duties as king. That summer of 1193, he crossed the mainland and began to prepare his defenses. There was little he could do. Most of the peninsula was an open revolt, and the few towns that weren't had an air of defeatism. Yet, with a combination of diplomacy, gifts, and shows of military force, Tancred slowly began to make progress, restoring his authority. But before he could accomplish much, he caught a fever. He returned to Palermo in the hopes that his health would improve, but it only got worse. In early February, his 18-year-old son and heir died, and a few days later, the grieving Tancred followed him. Without him, there was no hope for Sicily. The sudden death of both king and heir robbed the kingdom of its will to resist. Tancred's three-year-old surviving son, William III, was crowned, but those attending were more intent on coming to terms with Henry than fighting him. Even Tancred's queen, Sibylla, recognized that the end had come. She installed herself and her son in a castle and waited for it to be over. It didn't take long. Henry's progress through Italy was more triumphal procession than military campaign. With one or two exceptions, most cities threw open their gates and willingly turned over hostages as a guarantee of good behavior. Naples, which had bravely resisted the last invasion, capitulated before the first German soldier arrived. Without the energy of Tancred, morale everywhere had collapsed. In October, Henry crossed to Messina, after offering them generous tax breaks to soften them up, and landed in Sicily unopposed. A month later, the abandoned Sibylla surrendered, and Henry entered into Plermo. After only 64 years, Houtville rule in Sicily had come to an end. Henry VI was crowned on Christmas Day 1194, with Queen Sibylla and young William III in attendance, probably watching with a mixture of relief and sadness. The German emperor had been surprisingly mild in his treatment of the deposed Normans, promising adequate estates to live out their lives in a comfortable style. There was a vague hope that a distant emperor would be a moderate ruler, and his kindness to the queen supported that. But it wasn't to be. Only four days after the coronation, Henry abruptly changed tactics. Claiming an assassination plot, which may or may not have been the case, he had Sibylla and young William III arrested and shipped off to Germany. Any Norman noble who had attended King Tancred's coronation was rounded up and burned alive, while the emperor's tax officials looted the island. The Norman treasury at Palermo was packed onto mules and sent north, where the most famous pieces, among them King Roger's cloak, still reside. For Queen Sibylla, at least, there was a happy ending. After five years in captivity, she was released to live out the rest of her life in the obscurity that she had never wanted to leave, Her son William III, however, wasn't so fortunate. The last Norman king of Sicily died in a German prison. Some sources say that he was castrated and blinded on Henry's orders, others that he was forcibly tonsured. Perhaps it was both. Either way, he was dead within four years. The kingdom he left behind was only 64 years old when it died, and, for the people of Sicily, the loss was tremendous. The island was, as its most perceptive citizens feared, lost within the vast German Empire. Never again would it run its own affairs or have the luxury of native rule. From now on, it would always be just a part of some larger kingdom or state. But the real tragedy was that its own rulers had thrown away that independence. This was the Achilles' heel of Norman Sicily. The absolute power of the kings meant that everything depended on the character of the person on the throne. Under the brilliant Rogers, Sicily was wealthy and prosperous. Under the Williams, it actively decayed. Tancred may have made a worthy king, but it was too late by the time he arrived. In those six decades of life, however, Norman Sicily blazed brilliantly, a shining example of that rarest of commodities, good government. Sicily was never so prosperous or happy again. There remains one final footnote. A central figure in the Norman kingdom's demise has been conspicuously absent. Constance, William II's aunt, who was promised the kingdom by her nephew, and on whose behalf Henry VI had invaded and conquered Sicily. Though she was of how blood, and technically the ruler of Sicily, Constance wasn't with her husband on that Christmas Day 1194 when he was crowned. She was on the mainland, where, a day after Sicily lost its independence, she gave birth to her only son. She named him Frederick Barbarossa, after his fearsome German grandfather. But in temperament and outlook, he was more Norman than Teutonic, and he never forgot that he was also the grandson of Roger II. He grew up on the streets of Palermo, and the restless Houtville blood flowed in his veins. It is his life which is the final echo, and in a sense a fitting eulogy, of the Norman kingdom of Sicily. Join me next time as I take a look at the life of Frederick II, who is remembered as Mundi, the wonder of the world.